This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me again this week, as he is every single week, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing, who I am happy to say is not in a bathrobe this week. Chris, I wasn't in a bathrobe last week. I was in command pajamas, completely different. <laughs> oh, um, you're right. You're right. It's it's not that. It's Michael Fisher robe. who came to the ready yes. room this week in a bathrobe. Yeah, I don't have a command robe, even though I would love one. Um, I have not <laughs> bought that from Think Geek yet. I was in the I was in the command pajamas. Now I am disappointed, Chris, because we also recorded the orb this week. Uh, with the guys from Standard Orbit, because we were talking about uh, trials and tribulations, and I realized what better time would there have been to wear my command-style pajamas, because I would have fit in with the episode, even though Kirk was wearing the wraparound green tunic in that episode. So, Think Geek needs to do wraparound green pajamas. You know, yeah. I mean, the wraparound dress is huge for girls. The wraparound shirt needs to be the new thing for men. <laughs> Oh my, all right. All right, well, Matthew, let's go ahead and jump into the news here so we can get through those items because in the future, I'm very excited that we're joined this week by none other than Greg Cox to talk about his new novel, No Time Like the Past. But first, we have some more information about Kirsten Byer's upcoming Voyager novel. And uh, it's, it's really great to hear a little bit more about what's going to be going on in there. Chris, it's so exciting. We finally got the blurb for The Acts of Contrition, which, you know, I always think of as, as like kind of the movie trailer for the book. In a world where Captain Janeway has taken command of the Frill Circle fleet, her first mission, return to the Delta Quadrant. Open negotiations with the Confederacy of Worlds of the First Quadrant, a civilization whose power equals that of the Federation. While awaiting the captain's arrival, Captain Chokote knows that he has made certain decisions that could derail the potential alliance. While grateful to the Confederacy Interstellar Fleet for rescuing the Federation starships from an alien armada, the Voyager captain cannot forget the horrors upon which the Confederacy was founded. More troubling, it appears that several of Voyager's old adversaries have formed a separate and unlikely pact that is determined to bring down the Confederacy at all costs. (laughs) 
Matthew, I have to tell you now, this this here, I'm going back to the TV series, and when they say some of Voyager's old adversaries, I'm picturing the Kazon species 8472, Captain Ransom, and a Herogen all walking up together in a group with their hands on their hips. Isn't that a Voyager joke? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like they walk into a bar? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. A Kazon, species 8472, Captain Ransom, and a Herogen walk into a bar. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man. That that oh, needs man. to be Kirsten's next book. I think we need to get her on the phone right away. Yeah, I will be sure to do that. <laughs> Hopefully she's listening and uh, we'll make that part of the third part of this trilogy. I think that's really where it all comes together. That's, that's what brings it full circle. <laughs> Hey, ooh, bum, 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 full circle, Chris. <laughs> no, oh, but, but this, this does sound very intriguing here and, and, and very exciting. And, but we have to wait a little while for it. Well, and I think it's just exciting that we're getting two great Voyager books in one year. Um, Gearson has been knocking it out of the park with the Voyager series uh, for the longest time. As everybody knows, not a Voyager fan, but she has made me fall in love with the series and its characters, and I cannot wait to be able to read this and be able to talk to her when this comes out. Most definitely. So great to get some news on that. Now, we also have some visual news here in the form of a sneak peek at some painted interior artwork from the first issue of The City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, Chris, this was done... By the same artist, uh, J.K. Woodward, who did the uh, interiors for the Doctor Who TNG crossover. And I just love this kind of artwork personally, the, the, the beautiful painted artwork that we're getting. So this makes me really even more excited for the comic that we're going to be getting in the city on the edge of forever for Harlan Ellison's version. And so uh, definitely sufficiently excited here with this artwork. I, I think it's really beautiful. And crazy enough, uh, the artwork just keeps coming. John Burns' uh, New Visions comic, they put on the Trek Collectives uh, a few of the panels that he's been creating for that as well. Uh, this picture that he's created of the Enterprise looks really epic. Um, does, he is yeah. definitely going way beyond Photoshop uh, here to create something really special. Yeah, this is really interesting looking. As much as I wasn't as excited about this idea, seeing this kind of artwork does make me excited um, because it's as close as we'll come to getting brand new TOS episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting take here. I, I was surprised when I saw this panel because, you know, we, we did read the first John Byrne photo comic and, you know, he did get into manipulating the frames a good bit there, especially towards the end. Uh, but this is just another step beyond that. Well, and then what's really cool, Chris, um, is that Amazon has recently sampled some pages um, from some throwback omnibuses that they're putting out. And one of them is this Gold Key Comics. Mm -hmm. And uh, now these have been released before, but IDW has is claiming that they have been fully remastered. And, and now thanks to Amazon, we're getting a look at these cleaned up pages and they really are beautiful. Um, and I completely agree. I mean, this artwork is is fantastic. It is definitely that older style comic, but these look so good. I mean, they look like something that's been inked 
you know, right. in, in the last few years um, because of the clarity. Yeah, because we've been reading some of the older comics off of our DVD where we have PDFs of, of all the older comics. And we know what those look like. And you can tell here that these definitely are cleaned up. Yeah, it's it's just looking fantastic, Chris. So I'm excited to see these. Uh, I would have to say I'm sufficiently excited for the Gold Key archives. I actually might um, purchase this, and it might be something we have to talk about on Literary Treks to well, look at. This this page that we have right here, the Planet of No Return, and, and what's happening in this scene, absolutely this is sufficiently exciting. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it looks like a man-eating... Venus flytrap is about to take one of the Enterprise crew members. So yeah. if that's not sufficiently exciting, I don't really know what is. So I'm looking forward to this too. And this is part of that apparent resurgence of gold key comics this year. Because if you remember those Hot Wheels cars that are coming out also mm -hmm. have the gold key artwork on them. So something's going they on. They do. Now, Chris, I, I did look this up. Um, on, on Amazon, it is going to be available in hardcover for $21, oh, okay. so a really fantastic price. It's also available on Kindle for $10.49. Mm -hmm. So this does look like it's going to be available in a few different places. Um, you know, I'm... I, if, if this is available digitally, it's going to be hard for me to make that decision. But I don't know. There might be something about having this in, in page form that yeah. I really enjoy. So um, you know, it looks like I'm probably going to be getting this for sure. <laughs> you know, I'll probably end up buying both because I'll most want to read them on my iPad. But it is the kind of thing that I'd like to have over there on the shelf with my Star Trek books yeah. as well. If it's going to be hardcover. Well, and then the cool, the next thing, Chris, is that we got the um, Stardate Collection Volume 2 which is the under the command of Christopher Pike. And we got the contents of that. And mm -hmm. so um, we're going to get the early voyages, 7 through 17. Um, there's going to be the alien spotlight, Orion's, and then Captain's Log, Pike. And so uh looks like this is going to be really exciting. Um, in fact, uh, J.K. Woodward, who did the is doing the artwork for the... Um, New Harlan Ellison comic is also responsible for the artwork there in the Captain's Log Pike. And so um, this looks really cool as well. Uh, you know, we have had a huge resurgence in, in uh, comic archives and, and Star Trek comics in the last few years. And I think all due to the fact that um, you get really getting a lot of fans from the JJ series finding Star Trek and wanting more of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just loving the fact that all of us older fans are really just benefiting from this, um, this resurgence and this reprinting, you know, because you might not have gotten into it as much as in say like the eighties and nineties or, you know, early two thousands. And, and now that it's getting reprinted and remastered, all this stuff is just looking fantastic. Absolutely. Now, Captain's Log Pike, this is the entry in the Captain's Log series that we actually did here on the show quite a while back. Is it not? Yeah, Chris, it is. I mean, it it is uh, the same comics that we had done before, so that's really exciting. Uh, the fact that this is a part of that collection. Um, I I don't actually have Stardate Collection Volume One that had the John Byrne comics in it as well as uh, as some others. So I'm excited to to check this out. Um, you know, this might be another one of those things that I'm going to have to be jumping into. 
Um, that one it had involved the issues one through five, the crew issues, Alien Spotlight Vulcans, and some early voyages one through six. Um, so there's some great stuff that's just being done out there, and I'm I'm really excited to, to yeah. be able to take a look at these. We should do Alien Spotlight Orions as a feature sometime. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, definitely. That would be a lot of fun, especially since we just had the Orions uh, being featured in uh, Greg Cox's new book. They're a huge mm-hmm. part, actually, of the, the, the new No Time Like the Past. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's all we have in news today. And so quick news, and we're going to jump right into our discussion with Greg Cox. But before we do that, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. As we tell you every week, Audible is the best source you're going to find online for audiobooks. But there is so much stuff on Audible that you can go beyond Star Trek. You know, like I, I'm reading right now Mikio Kaku's new science book about the future of the brain, which is very, very interesting. So science uh, current releases across many, many genres, as well as Star Trek, are all waiting for you there on Audible, mostly in unabridged format, although the Star Trek books do tend to be abridged. It's a great way for you to read all the books that you want to read, but you really don't have time for because we're so busy. It's hard for most of us today, at least if you're like me, to sit down with a, with a book and just read. So I love to listen to things as I go along. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. And as we do every week, we'd like to recommend a book to you. And because we're having Greg on the show today, they actually have Greg's eugenics wars novels the con novels there in audio format on audible and uh they're read by anthony stewart head also by renee abergenoy and if you haven't read the rise and fall of con nooney and seeing by greg cox go over to audible and sign up for the trial and pick these up and you can you can read a great backstory to con in the prime timeline of course and not the abrams first stuff here you know and find out what happened in the eugenics wars? Yeah, Chris, this is uh, definitely exciting. If you have not read Greg's books, they are fantastic. What a great way to experience them by getting one of them, especially if you've never read them for them. You can get the first one for free. And so this is a great way to be able to do that. Absolutely. So again, the way you do that is go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And sign up for Audible. You'll get to pick an audiobook absolutely free. And if at the end of that trial, you decide that you don't want to stick with Audible for some reason, you get to keep that book. So nothing to lose, but but a lot to gain because there's so much great stuff on Audible. I've been downloading books from them for 14 years, and I have no plans to stop anytime soon. And if you love podcasts, if you're listening to this show, you're going to absolutely love audiobooks. So go check it out. Help us keep literary treks coming to you every week by supporting Audible. Again, audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of literary treks and the network. Chris, uh, we are really excited uh, because the brand new TOS novel, No Time Like the Past, has just been released. And tonight we're Really excited to be able to welcome back Greg Cox with us to talk about this novel, which features a very big meeting between two of Star Trek's biggest cast members. We've got Seven and Nine from Voyager and Captain Kirk from the Enterprise from TOS. And so bringing these two together was was Greg's idea here in this brand new novel. We're very excited to have him back on the show. Greg, it, it was, it's so great to have you with us. Oh, great. I'm glad to be back. And to have a new Star Trek book to talk about. 
Yeah, welcome back, Greg. Awesome, awesome. Well, I love the fact that that you've you've um, been having Star Trek books. Uh, the Weight of Worlds last year was just fantastic. Uh, this year, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to give it away real quick. We are going to talk about some spoilers here, folks. So beware if you haven't read the novel. I would go ahead and read that and then come back and listen to the interview. But I really enjoyed this novel, Meeting of Two uh, Titans. And so first, that uh, came to me. Um, when I first heard the book was announced, the idea of Seven and Kirk coming together, one, brought all sorts of, you know, fanboy <laughs> fantasies into my mind. Wow, is how's Kirk going to hit on Seven? And <laughs> right. Are they going to have grandchildren somewhere down the line? Um, but oh where did the idea of kind of taking these two very large characters from their respective series and kind of bringing them together come from? Well, you know, I actually have to give credit where it's due to my editor, Margaret Clark, um, who the idea of actually bringing Seven into the plot was her idea. I had a vague idea for a book that involved Kirk having to deal with a mysterious time traveler from the future and all sorts of temporal prime directive issues. But at that point, honestly, I didn't know who the visitor from the future should be, uh, Berlinghaan, Rasmussen, you know, Geordi LaForge, whoever. And it was, in fact, Margaret who suggested, well, why don't you do Seven of Nine? And I jumped on the idea because I've always wanted to write Seven of Nine. I wrote one Voyager novel 17 years ago, back in the Kess era, so I've never actually had a chance to write Seven. I've always regretted that I never had a chance to write Seven. So, oh, basically I knew a good idea when I heard it. I went, oh, you really think they'll let us do that? And, And they did. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. So kind of the 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 layout for me, the the genesis of the story then is it can kind of came together. So you're crafting a story with Kirk and time travel, you bring in seven. How do you marry these two very different universes and, and, and really, you know, obviously different sides of the galaxy at that point too? It was a struggle. I, I actually have vivid memories of sitting in a local diner one morning, sort of pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how to make it work. <laughs> um, the, the, the other idea I had, though, was I kind of wanted to do something fun. Uh, now it can be told. My vague idea was to do something kind of akin to those National Treasure movies of Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. Or maybe, yeah. Mm. you know. I, I had just finished reading a lot of the Sigma Force novels by James Rowland, okay. which are like archaeological adventure books, and thought, well, gee, how about a sort of, you know, rollicking time travel, you know, treasure hunt through Star Trek history? And and then also bringing in the idea of, okay, I meant people from the future, and Kirk has to get somebody from the future back to the future before they interfere with the timeline. And then, oh, well, seven is perfect. But then, of course, as you mentioned, she's on a hold. So, okay, I need, then, okay, obviously, I need a gadget that can cross time and space. I need to set things up so that, um, you know, to sort of ex- avoid doing too much damage to the timeline. Um, and uh, at one point, I remember I was going to dry- drag in the time ship relativity from that one episode of Voyager. But right, just, yes. That just got too complicated, and I ended up streamlining the plot a bit. Okay, this is just getting... I do remember, like I said, sitting in that diner, you know, eating bacon and eggs and trying to, okay, wait, wait, <laughs> because time travel plots are tricky. Yes. In fact, true story, 
uh, this has been an idea that's been at the back of my head for some time. I actually came up with this idea before I wrote The Weight of Worlds. And there's actually a parallel universe oh, really? out there where I wrote this book, No Time Like the Past, before I wrote The Weight of Worlds. But oh, okay. um, I, I was having trouble making <laughs> right. it all come together. And honestly, I had just done Rings of Time right. um, before that. And it was like, do I really want to do two twisty time travel books in a row? No. So I kind of took time out, did The Weight of Worlds, and then came back to time travel. But yeah, it was. You were it, afraid that Dolmer and Luxley would come after you and, and really, really grill you about this. Yeah, right? so it was like, okay, so I, I did Weight of Worlds first. But th this idea of doing the a time travel adventure involving Kirk and Seven has been something that's been sort of percolating for, for some time, actually. And then I had to familiarize myself with Voyager again because, honestly, again, I had not written the Voyager characters, Janeway, Tuvok, Neelix, for. 17 years, literally. I thought, well, can I still do that? So I actually went and binge-watched all of season six of Voyager just to try to absorb mm. the feel of it and the characters again and to pick up Seven's voice in particular. Writing Voyager, what is it that's kind of different? I mean, you've written a lot of TOS, um, some TNG, Mirror Universe, but what is it that's kind of unique about writing that Voyager crew that's different from from all of the others that really you wanted to be able to grasp? Mostly, honestly, it was the characters. Um, you know, the technology is basically the same as doing right. a Next Generation novel. But it had been a while since I wrote those characters. It had been, to be honest, a while since I had watched the series. So I just wanted to make sure, okay, that, that I could, you know, do my feat of literary mimicry and just sort of, you know, make the characters sound like the characters because as I know from talking to fans, nothing knocks people out of the book of Italian novel faster than, you know, Riker wouldn't say that. Uh, characters mm -hmm. don't sound like right. that. So, and indeed, I, I found myself actually enjoying the writing the Voyager characters again. Just to be clear, they're the, the rest of the crew is only kind of peripherally in the book. They're sort of in the framing right. sequence. Most of the book involves Seven back in the 23rd century. But I, I was actually enjoying myself in the chapters. Oh, my God, I haven't done Neelix or Balana or Tuvok or that whole crowd for a long time, you know. And I enjoyed having the excuse to go back and watch all those old Voyager episodes again. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I, I, I can tell one funny story, too. I also, I've been writing a lot of TOS in the last several years. Yes. Four or five TOS. I got a little out of the habit on the technology. I had to keep correcting myself. And in fact, at one point, Margaret had mm. to remind me that, uh, Greg, um, tricorders in the 24th century aren't big, you know, purse-like gadgets you sling <laughs> on a strap over your... You know, I actually had seven, seven removed the tricorder from the strap on her shoulder. And, uh, Greg, you've been riding TOS too long, you know. <laughs> you know they're little handheld devices the size of a cell phone. Oh, you're right. Sorry, you know. That's great. That that is so true. I I think um at this week on our our show um for Deep Space Nine the Orb we were talking about the 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 trials and tribulations episode, and you know we we really do get so used to when you you start watching one of the shows a lot, just kind of thinking in that that Star Trek mold. Okay, oh well, everybody has you know uh, a leather strapped you know 
tricorder or the 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 flip communicator or any of those things and and or then you have to they all have com badges on their chest exactly yes yeah. yes like when right. cisco goes to tap his chest and it's not there and so <laughs> that's awesome um yeah that, i think that's fantastic um okay so one of the things i think you know that any person who watches through voyager finds out is that you know, Janeway is really a huge Kirk guru. In fact, if there was probably a Kirk fan club, she's probably the the president. <laughs> um, although she's lost in the Delta Quadrant, and so she can't do the correspondence anymore. Um, so, and, it, and it's kind of interesting, kind of to see the correlation between these two crews and and between these captains. Uh, talk a little bit about that for me, because I, as I read the book, I really found. That, you know, if you look at Voyager, I think it might be the best one for one of the original series, or at least the idea of what the original series was, has been, has been done. Well, I did never noticing that, in fact, um, Seven, you know, can't help comparing Kirk's crew to her crew mm-hmm. and noticing that, my God, McCoy is, you know, about as curmudgeonly as the EMH. Right. <laughs> and wondering if it's some sort of mandatory requirement of Starfleet doctors, since she hasn't had a lot of experience with Starfleet medical officers besides, you know, the holographic doctor. And she runs back, well, you know, McCoy's what a colorful character, too, you know. <laughs> and she wonders to what degree McCoy's, you know, you know, medical records may have influenced the programming of the EMH. And she's heard about Kirk and everything. So she's sort of curious to check him out and, you know, well, did you really meet Da Vinci, like Janeway said, you know. <laughs> I ended up not doing as much with Seven and Spock as I meant to, just because, honestly, it turned out that they were having the two of them in the same scene was always kind of redundant because they both have same, sort of the same cool analytical right. approach to problem solving. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, they have a couple of nice scenes together, but it mostly became a book mostly about Seven interacting with Kirk and to some degree Scotty, um, but uh, you know. Seven and Spock, you know, respect each other, but don't interact much, you know. Yeah, and I and what I thought it was interesting too is that she actually seems to have a lot of great interaction with McCoy. In fact, he has a lot to do in this book. As you know, I feel like you know a lot of TOS books, he's kind of um, pushed to the side and he's just kind of brought out every once in a while. But this book has a lot of McCoy in it, and his interaction with Seven, I thought, was really interesting. So I'd love to just kind of hear about your idea of, of diving into you know, the characters of kind of Kirk and Bones and, and Seven. And what's it like, you know, just kind of adding something to these characters, which, you know, we're all really familiar with. Um, but trying to make something maybe just a little bit fresh and a little bit new that we didn't know before. Well, in the case of Seven, I had the advantages. I've, I've you know, taken her and put her in a brand new environment. So... You know, I tend to, the chapters tend to alternate back and forth between points of view, but from Seven's point of view, she's constantly sort of, you know, comparing the 23rd century to her own world. She's sort of remarking on, oh, wow, so this is what a sick bay looked like back then. Um, uh, she has to remember she can't really, you know, the people didn't have comm badges, and there are no, holo, holo, no holodecks. Um, and the fact that she gets to sort of reinvent herself to a certain degree because no one knows what her whole background is, and the one thing I had to be very careful of, and this was another sort of potential minefield that I had to navigate, was nobody in Kirk's time knows who the Borg are. Right. So they don't 
So she can't like, oh, hi, I'm seven of nine, you know, and I'm, I'm a former Borg. You know, they don't know the Borg. She has to be careful not to tell them the Borg. There's a certain degree of moral dilemma to her not telling them about the Borg. Gee, I could warn them about the Borg, you know, 100 years early. I could keep myself from being abducted from the Borg. But on the same time, the Kirk and McCoy in particular are not stupid. They pick up on the fact that she's not exactly mainline, baseline human, you know. And there's, I had to go to great efforts to make sure that I didn't, you know, contaminate the timeline, as it were, by letting Kirk or McCoy or Spock find out about the Borg long before Picard did, you know. Yeah, and there's a great question, I think, in there, too, um, because McCoy does get the opportunity to scan her and and find out that there's a lot in her that's different. Um, in that question of, of what does it mean to, to be human and kind of um, are these, you know, McCoy's question to himself is, are these really improvements? Um, and uh, what are we going to do to ourselves with technology? Oh, yeah, that seemed very, very consistent with his character. That of course, McCoy was going to regard this whole thing, you know, of sort of tampering with humans. He doesn't, for all he knows, everybody in the 24th century has these implants. He doesn't understand about the Borg. He's just, okay, she's from the future and she's got these weird nanoprobes and gadgets and, you know, good God, man, you know, they've tampered with the very nature of humanity, you know. Um, <laughs> so, although I tried not to just make him one-sided, he, especially near the end, he sort of comes around to the idea that, well, you know, it makes him uncomfortable, but it makes him uncomfortable as a 23rd century person. He can't say that it doesn't work in the 24th century, you know. He, yeah, he doesn't think humanity is ready for that sort of change right now, but he's not complete Luddite. He's not completely against progress. So fine. He, he gives Seven the benefit of the doubt that for whatever reason she has all these implants and things, you know, that that's her and that's your future and that's not my present but fine I'm not going to judge you which was a whole which was a whole sort of interesting dynamic you know that's probably one reason why like I said McCoy's in that book very prominently I knew I had to deal with the fact that she's not human I knew I had to deal with the fact that mm -hmm. she was going to get scanned right. in fact you know to give just a little bit of waste otherwise she very much resists getting examined examined for much of the book, but then a medical emergency arises and McCoy has to get involved and this becomes a dilemma, you know. At which point then, you know, McCoy has to kind of come to terms with the fact that, well, she's a Borg. <laughs> Even though we never use the B word. Right. <laughs> that four-letter B word. Um, <laughs> well, and I, I think it's interesting too because, you know, in her interactions with Kirk, there's a great little – you you definitely – deal with the fact that Kirk has this reputation as a ladies' man, um, and he's meeting Seven, who's probably the hottest babe in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and I love the fact that you have McCoy literally chuckling in the background because she's not responding to his Kirk charm. <laughs> no. In fact, I, I, I'm glad you feel that way because it's funny. The minute this book was announced, and indeed everybody's first re reaction when they hear, find out that Kirk and Seven are getting together is always, well, you know, hubba hubba. Right. And, <laughs> but, you know, we, we talked about it and we decided very quickly that we're not going to go there. And I hope to God I'm not disappointing 
all the Trekkies of the world because that was everybody's first response. Is, oh boy! I'm sure there <laughs> are a few disappointed but people out it, it there. It just <laughs> seemed too obvious. It te- seemed, you know, I- I'm sure if you want to find Kirk and Seven getting together, there's plenty of fanfic on the internet. Right. You know, <laughs> lots of fanfic. <laughs> no disrespect to fanfic or anything, but we we, we kind of very quickly decided we're not going to go there. And, but again, you have to address it. And in fact, you may notice I I address it. And dismiss it pretty damn fast. You know, Kirk tries to pour on the charm, like, you know, the second chapter after they've met, she shuts him down, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> you know? Well, and it, and it, and what's great about it is that it's so consistent with her character of, of that not being something that she was really necessarily dealing with in that sixth season until later on. Yeah, you didn't see seven. Seven getting all mushy and succumbing to, you know, the yes. legendary charm of James T. Kirk, you know, uh, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Season seven, you know, when she was experimenting with Chakotay, she might have been a little more susceptible to Kirk's charm, but season six, no way. <laughs> exactly. And oh, know, we, we sort of, you know, we flirted with the idea that she would be attracted to Spock instead, but I just, you know, it didn't really fit into the plot. You know, there was a lot of stuff going on and adding some sort of romantic tension between Spock and Seven just, you know, mm-hmm. we flirted with the idea See, that she'd the, be attracted to Spock yeah. instead, but it just, it, mm-hmm. n- nothing came of it. That was one of those ideas that you play around and brainstorm with, but just didn't, ended up not getting into the book. My thought there was if, if she was going to kind of like flirt relationally with anybody, it would have been really interesting to me to see her kind of flirt with Bones or with Scotty, somebody you just didn't expect, you know, um, where mm. it, it came out of the blue, you know, Kirk or Spock, you might kind of expect because of the different uh, relationships they could have with her, the cold logic or the, um, you know, Kirk being the ladies man, but somebody like Bones or Scotty, you just don't really expect them to be getting the lady. Um, but she has some great interactions with both of those guys that I, I really appreciate because, you know, at the very end of the book, she talks about how, you know, if there had been any representatives of the 23rd century to kind of introduce her to this time period, she hit, she felt like she had met the best. And of course, as we all feel as fans, she did meet the best. It's funny. There's there's an extended sequence near the end, which without giving too much away, yeah, you know, as you know, Seven and Scotty end up on a mission together. And I went back and forth actually at various points whether or not that climax sequence should involve, um. Spock and Spock and Seven or Scotty or Seven and and at one point I was sort of flirted with the idea of making it Spock just because well you know Spock is Spock and you know he's 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 the lead you know kind of, you know he's he's Spock you know and you want to give him a, but it just seemed that I, as I tried sort of writing it both ways that the interaction between Scotty and Seven was actually a lot more fun like I said Spock and Seven it was just two logical people being very logical together um, it wasn't very interesting. Yeah, so and it gave sort of playing around with it. I said, "Fine, just it's more fun to have her interacting with Scotty, you know." Yeah, and it gave it a lot of life, you know, because um, you know the the the, the thoughts kind of going on in Scotty's head and and everything are a counterpoint to her cool kind of resolve, uh, and so yeah, I think it worked really well in that way. Um, and so, I, the other part that I thought was really interesting is you talked about the beginning. You know, you're going to have this big time hopping adventure, um, very national treasure like, or kind of an Indiana Jones kind of um, archaeological e- excitement. We're going to go find something in all these different places. So, 
you had a, a very obvious reason, obviously, of of doing um, Serpedian as the 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 main planet that's kind of going to be the the catalyst for this, even though we don't know that in the beginning and and the kind of the end point. But um, you know, you have TOS as the playground. What made you choose the other planets? What was it about all of that that goes into the story that that really made you choose, um, you know, Sharon and, and uh, Gamma Triglia? Well, I basically pulled down my copy of the Star Trek once I decided that I wanted to do sort of a fun tour of Star Trek history. I went looking through my, you know, dog-eared copy of the Star Trek chronology to see what ancient civilizations were there that I could have fun with mm-hmm. um, and, you know, decided to more or less stick to TOS. And Lord knows the TOS universe is littered with lost civilizations and ancient... And, yeah. and, and a year and a half later trying to reconstruct my thought processes is a little tricky because I've, I've, I've two or three books since then. <laughs> two or three books ago, <laughs> writing-wise. Um, but it... Those ones kind of leaped out at me. For one thing, they haven't been explored too much. Um, they had colorful histories. They had dangers the characters could face. Plus, the idea kind of came to my mind that all of them should be cautionary examples, as opposed to someone yeah. that, you know, oh, you know, the Vol planet has a warning, you know, a warning here. Um, Charon is obviously a very, very, you know, bad cautionary example of what can go wrong with civilizations. Mm. Sarpedon has its issues, uh, banishing people backwards in time and all that. Um, right. So, so the idea that, what, that it wasn't going to be just, you know, random stops, that in theory Seven is supposed to be learning something along this voyage, you know, I, I sort of looked for stories, past settings where they could have interesting adventures, colorful settings, and... Like, like I said, there'd be sort of a theme of each of them being a cautionary exam, uh, example of what can go wrong with technology and technology being abused to sort of tie in with the whole temporal prime directive plot line. Plus, I honestly, I had just finished doing a rewatch of the entire original series, so I had all those old episodes fresh mm-hmm. in my brain and had been, you know, I'd just seen the apple and and let it be your last battlefield and all our yesterdays fairly recently and, you know, gee, you know, let's, let's, let's go back and have fun with them, you know. Yeah. And I think that's a, a lot of fun. One of the things that uh, I think makes a great, um, TOS novel is one that it, you, you get, as you said earlier, you get the, um, the voice of the characters, um, but also that you get something that really kind of sometimes ties things together and you know this book does a great job of kind of tying a a lot of those different TOS episodes into something that is a little bit more cohesive you know TOS is very much an anthology show in a lot of ways so I love when the novels kind of weave together something that that creates a thread between the different episodes and let's go back and explore some of those concepts at slightly greater depth I mean I remember spending a long afternoon on the phone talking with a friend just trying to figure out exactly how the planet of the black, white, white, black people could have possibly developed and how their society worked. And if you watch the episode, there's some vaguenesses as to how their powers work, et cetera. You know, um, 
why does Loki seem to have one power and Bailey, you know, so I got to sort of sit down and try to figure out the logic and again, sitting down and trying to figure out on gamma triangulate, whatever, you know, why the hell do they have explosive rocks? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Who the hell sets up a paradise planet that has poisoned, poisoned plants and explosive rocks, you know? Yeah, it doesn't really seem like paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, oh. So, like I said, it gave me an excuse to watch a lot of the old episodes and indeed get on the phone and occasionally brainstorm it with some of my, you know, Trekkie friends and fellow authors. And sort of. So I've been thinking about the apple. Does anyone know why they have explosive rocks <laughs> on that planet? You know. Yeah. Can anybody explain that in a way that makes any kind of sense? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, and you know, talked about this too uh, a little bit there. Uh, it, the idea of writing time travel can be a headache. And so... Give us uh, just a little insight of what it's like to kind of craft these stories where you you want to make it feel like it makes sense, even though, as Janeway has in the end, it, it gives you a headache. Well, you want to avoid any of the obvious sort of, wait, if they know this, why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they just go back in time you know, to this and stop this from happening? And well... Basically, like I said, my solution is to just try to make sure it was reasonably airtight. Um, this meant simplifying. Like I said, at one point I was going to drag in a rival band of time travelers, and I was going to drag in the relativity, and it just was starting, it turned into a house of cards that you'd pull out. But wait, if the relativity is involved, why couldn't it just, bang, you know, why can't they just take 70 back where she belongs? Bang, you know. So I ended up trying to keep it fairly simple and just, but yeah, even as I was writing, I had to keep stop. Okay, so wait, so they're going back now. Where, yeah, you know, okay, this is all hold together. And I'm knocking on wood here when I say I like to think at the moment it's fairly airtight. <laughs> Though of course I may well get a letter tomorrow explaining. But wait, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but just make sure everything knows what and that, okay, if and what if this has happened here and this happened this time and what. And I remember I would occasionally freeze up at the keyboard. Wait. But if I had these moments of sort of a chill would run down my side, wait, if she deactivated this, then why was this still here at the time in the episode? Oh, wait, because she, okay, right, never mind, you know, um, cool, it works, you know, because, you know, you write a book under, over a period of a long time, indeed, you write the outline, and then you go off and write another book while you're waiting for the outline to be approved, right. and you come back and, okay, did I, I I'm pretty sure I all worked this out. What was my solution here? And you start, you start to worry that you missed a hole the first time around, you know. But, yeah, so you just sort of constantly sort of stopping and checking yourself. Okay, this person happened to this, this changed this, this changed this, and it all holds together, you know, uh, hopefully. Knock on wood, you know. <laughs> there, there, there is, in fact, a lot of excedrin involved. And, yeah, that's why Janeway makes her jokes about, you know, time travel giving you headaches. Yeah. Right. In my case, it's basically a case of trying to keep the plot relatively simple on one level and linear as much as it can be of time travel because I had enough high-concept stuff going on. There was a level where I realized, that, wait, you've got Kirk and Seven in one book. You know, that's enough high-concept right. for anything. You, I don't need to drag in a rival band of time travelers. <laughs> I don't need to drag in the relativity. I don't need to, you know, just, just relative, you know, Seven is back in our time. We need to get her back to her time without messing up history too much. Uh, the bad guys want to get Seven, you know, because she has all this future knowledge. 
there are people in the Federation who want to pick Seven's brains. There are moral dilemmas. Just, but generally, you know, get Seven back to her own time before she messes up the timeline was reason. I want to have a reasonably simple storyline in which I could then build all this, th throw in all this fun stuff involving, you know, um, visits to past QS worlds and. Uh, paradoxes and whatnot, but you know, there's there's not a lot. I try to avoid paradoxes as much as possible. It, it's mostly more about the moral dilemma of what do you do if you find yourself in the past? What can you tell people? What can you cannot not tell mm -hmm. people? And indeed, and if you're if you meet somebody from the future, what are your obligations regarding finding out about the future? Mm -hmm. And again, it's I, I like to think it's not a you know for all we talk about the temporal prime directive, it's not a black and white question. There, there's a character in the book who, uh, uh, who's quite insistent on wanting to pick Seven's brain about the future, and he makes the point that, Lord, she can, you know, give us cures for this disease. She can help us jump ahead in technology a generation. She can give us a substantial advantage over the Romulans and Klingons. She can warn us of the next doomsday machine coming through. You know, uh, how can you not, you know, and there's sort of the dilemma of, you know, well, that's all ancient history to her. I, I'm not going to change history, you know. You know, Kirk dies. She knows how Kirk dies, you know. Um, but she can't warn him because, well, you know. That, but to them, it's, you no, know, that's hypothetical. You know, let us, you know, let us know when the Borg attacks. Okay, you know. So there's, there's, there's I, I like to think there was some chewing world dilemmas there to keep them occupied amidst all the time travel shenanigans. Definitely, and I think that's one of the, the, the most interesting things that throughout the book is that debate about the knowing the future. Uh, is it something that's truly beneficial? I mean, the characters have to wrestle with that idea. Is it really good for us to know what's going to happen? Um, because isn't there always the danger of what happens to these, you know, the these places that we visited? You know, the the the, the hologram that Seven talks to at the very end that explains to her why she's been on this trek. Says, look, I wanted you to visit the places that you visited is for a reason. Yeah, and you can see how things went bad. You know, um, just having, oh, all this great technology doesn't always necessarily help. You end up creating a computer god that takes over your mm -hmm. planet. Um, you know, you end up with this horrible race war, you know, with, you know. With genocidal weapons, you end up, you know, banishing people into the past, a la, a la our yesterdays, you know. And of course, Kirk personally knows, you know, from firsthand experience, just how much trouble one person running around in the past can do, you know. Need I mention Edith Keeler? <laughs> you know, um, right. So he, he's in fact understands Seven's dilemma very much that he doesn't want her accidentally, you know, saving 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 Edith Keeler. Okay, you know. And changing everything, even if it means that she occasionally can't warn him of trouble. Well, and you have too. I think the the beauty of the conversation about um, the technology and its good qualities, but also its destructive nature, um, and how um, you know unchecked technological advance can destroy a civilization before it absolutely knows the um, the best and the worst that it can bring. And indeed, if you look at the TOS universe, it is littered, as I said, with civilizations that created races of androids that destroyed them, or um, the ubiquitous computer gods that took over the you know planets. And uh, 
whatever. So there, there, there's any number of dangers here. You know, um, it's not just a oh boy, you know, give us more, give us more future technology and we'll be cool. <laughs> you know, even if it would eliminate certain threats, because hey, cool, you've eliminated you know vegan plague or you've the, boy, you're not going to be able to you know the Romulans and the Klingons are not going to be able to kick you around anymore. You know. But as I have even mentioned, that's even a double-edged sword there because who's to say that the Federation wouldn't get corrupted if the balance of power wouldn't be completely right. changed in the universe, if, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Or that the Klingons and Romulans would not react very badly if suddenly the balance of power appeared to sort of shift in the and the Federation got a huge technological boost from Seven, you know. It, it, there's all sorts of you know implications and ramifications, which they hash out at great length over the course of the book. You know, in in between all the daring do, you know. What was um? What were some of the things that were really enjoyable? Kind of writing the interaction between um, Seven and Kirk. I mean, getting to put these kind of big titans from their respective series together. Uh, what were what were some of the most fun things that you had doing with those two? Hmm. Let me think about that. To some degree, again, I'm having to throw my brain back because although, again, due to the slow vagaries of publishing, the book just came out. That's like, right, I wrote that book last year, <laughs> right. you know. Right. Um, and, and honestly, I'm 75,000 words into another Star Trek book okay. now. So yeah, I'm yeah. having to throw my brain yeah. back. Um well, you know, I, I remember trying to get their voices right and having them sort of perceive each other. It was fun flipping back and forth with sort of Spock. Kirk trying to figure out Seven and what her story was, and sort of um, Seven sort of appraising Kirk, you know, uh, and getting his, his taking his measure, and indeed discovering that he's not nearly the crazy, wild, rampant, you know, reckless cowboy that, say, you know, she occasionally has heard about in the future, that indeed Kirk is quite thoughtful, and Kirk, you know, is fully aware, has a very good grasp of the implications of time travel. Despite what the folks on relativity may think, despite what the Department of Temporal Investigations may think, you know, Kirk, Kirk is not nearly as reckless about time travel as his reputation. You know, mm -hmm, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and they do, in fact, you know, come to trust each other quite explicitly by the end of the book. You know, because um, you know, Kirk at first really has no idea, especially since she has to be quite deliberately vague. She tells him early on, "Hi, I'm not going to tell you everything." There's a lot of stuff about this situation that I'm not going to tell you, and I am being invasive, and I'm being invasive on purpose, and they have to get over that, you know. Yeah, I think that that's um, one of the neatest things is is and and that's what I loved about the book. Um, I, I think the most is that you know there is a pop culture kind of personification of Kirk. You know, that he's this kind of Lothario. He's reckless. He doesn't really care about people that are dying. Uh, under his command, he, you know, but if you watch the show very carefully, you, you see, uh, I think a very different Kirk, uh, a man who is deeply affected by everything that's going on around him. A one that, um, thinks a lot about what's going on. I think it has a lot to do with William Shatner's fantastic performance as Kirk. And then it even gets played out even more so in the films, um, that they do, um, because I think of the wonderful work of Nicholas Meyer. And so, well, indeed, yeah, Seven's perception of Kirk going in is that he's this sort of larger than life swashbuckling figure and whom indeed she doesn't entirely buy. Some, you know, there's, there's a, there's a great scene 
in one Voyager episode where you always get the impression that um, Janeway thinks Kirk's whole story about meeting Da Vinci was something of a tall tale, mm-hmm. you know. And to actually meet the real flesh and blood Kirk as opposed to the sort of mythic, you know, uh, somewhat larger than life, you know, um, figure of Kirk is, is, is the experience for, you know, Seven, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think it, and, and what's, what's fun about it is it's, it really plays out the idea of, you know, if we got to meet anybody from our history, um, you know, whether we got to meet, say, a Da Vinci or a Caesar or an Abraham Lincoln or whatnot, you know, we, we all have these ideas of what our, our heroes are like. And then actually to meet the real person, you know, can be sometimes disappointing. Um, but at the same time, uh, very comforting and enlightening because of the reality that they really are just like us. They they just happen to be um, at the right place at the right time, doing the right thing for the right reason to really make an impact. And, and Seven's able to be reasonably objective about it. she she is not a Kirk fan girl, so she's not you know, you're you're not getting her going all gaga the right. whole thing. But she's aware of Kirk. She's famous. She's curious. You know, but so she can sort of you know. Appraise him analytically, as it were. Right. Whereas, if you'd gotten Janeway doing this yeah. whole time traveling thing, there's a good chance her and Kirk might have ended up in bed <laughs> together. <laughs> oh my! Yeah. But yeah. Well, that'll be the next novel. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Um, okay. Well, so we have teased a little bit about this, but you. Have been writing a brand new Star Trek novel, Foul Deeds Will Rise, and it is a TOS movie era novel. Which honestly, I am trying to remember. I think the last one that came out um, was probably James Swallow's book um, about Valeris and Spock. Um, it's a Cast really no good Shadow. book, by the way. I have to mention Cast No Ex- Shadow. Yes, Cast No Shadow is fantastic. Uh, um, and I so that, but that is a long time ago. Um, and then before that, I think we had Ex Machina by uh, Christopher L. Bennett and right after the motion picture, which is one of my favorite Star Trek novels of all time. So is there anything you can tell us about this brand new book? Okay, I'm going to be a little coy here since it's still a work in progress. and it's, it, The book is coming out in December, by the way. I am actually working on it now. It's almost finished. My goal, in fact, is to get it finished by Monday. Um but, oh yes, it, it is in fact a movie-era novel. It is set in between the fifth and sixth movies. All right. The Enterprise A, um, which is new to me. I have never written the Enterprise A before. And indeed, I, I've only done the movie-era once before. There's a fra- the framing sequence of one of my con novels, Terrain in Hell, is set during the movie-era. But that's just, like I said, the framing sequence. Um, this is the first time I've ever done, really seriously done anything in the movie-era. Um, it is set. I haven't quite pinpointed the, the exact year yet, but it's closer to Star Trek V than Star Trek VI. Oh, that's um, exciting! That Sulu has Sulu is still on the bridge. Um, Sulu has not yet gone off to take off the Excel, take over the Excelsior. You know, Valeris has not shown up yet. Um, my, my idea is that it's like roughly the, you know a few months to a year after the events of Star Trek V and Nimbus and. Um, Cybok and all that, and the Enterprise is out on its mission, you know, and so we have the whole crew in place. Um, I'm trying to do a lot more of Chekhov in this book, actually. Chekhov is the security chief aboard the ship. Um, 
what am I, I always sort of set goals for myself because at this point I've written many, many, many Star Trek novels and I'm always looking for something to do different. In The Weight of Worlds, I wanted very much to do something more with Yura and Sulu, who I felt I had neglected in years gone by. I've never really done much of Chekhov before. Most of my Trek books are focused on the big three. So yeah, Chekhov has quite a lot to do in this book. This is, I said this is going to be, among other things, you know, at least not entirely the Chekhov book, but lots of Chekhov. He's not going to just be sitting there at the navigation station, you know. Hi, Captain Sir, you know. But it, um, and just to tease, it, I'm bringing back some characters from the original series. There's a reason why it's set in the movie era, and the reason is this book, much like The Wrath of Khan, has Kirk dealing with some repercussions of stuff that happened back during the original five-year yeah. mission. And for purposes of the plot, it was important that there be a passage of time. This is not like six months after the, you know, 20 years have passed, and he runs into some people he has not run into in 20 years or so. And I needed for the plot there to be a substantial time. And I also needed a somewhat older, wiser, somewhat more rueful Kirk, such as we see in the right. movies. It's a perhaps more mature, you know, Kirk, who is going to have to deal with some old issues, some very long-buried old issues coming back to haunt him again, as in Wrath of Khan, you know. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, one, because I think the time period between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI has a lot to offer because, you, you know, there's there's a lot that still could happen with that crew. You know, um, they had just gotten the Enterprise A really at that point in the first place, so they were going on a whole other, you know, mission, um, and they were going out to explore strange new worlds, so you have plenty of time for them to be able to do that, you know, and, um, you know, tell the story of the handover of Sulu to the Excelsior. And I mean, there's just so many great stories that can be told in this time period because it's still open, and yet you get to play with these older and a little bit wiser characters. I mean, you have a, a yeah. Hora who only knows how to look up Klingon <laughs> and books and stuff like that, so... um but which I loved, honestly, in uh, No Time Like the Past. You mentioned that Ohura speaks uh, Orion like a native, but unfortunately, she never learned Klingon, so that's too bad. <laughs> you know, it's funny. To, to get myself back into this mindset, I was looking at the novelization of Star Trek V and Star Trek VI, just to sort of, because those are, you know, uh -huh. and I was amused to see that J.M. Dillard in her novelization of movie VI explains that the reason they have to use paper books is because Valeris has sabotaged the linguistic programs aboard the ship. Valeris uh, was really yeah, big on the good. sabotage, wasn't she? Sabotage. Yes. <laughs> Which is actually sort of an ingenious idea yeah. that, you know, no, Yura tries to call up some sort of linguistic files and, damn it, someone's corrupted the yeah. file. Gee, who could that be? You know, but, yeah, so... As part of my research for this book, I've been, I've been watching Star Trek V and Star Trek VI a lot, and I actually, like I said, dragged down my novelizations mm -hmm. of movies five and six because those were set in that era. And I sort of quickly skimmed and reread Probe, which is kind of set yeah. in that era. I haven't read that in a long of, time. Yeah. Exactly, just to sort of get myself back into that mindset of the movie era. And exactly, Star Trek after Star Trek V was the ideal place to set this book. I knew I wanted to set it in the movie era, but yeah, there's not a lot of room between two, three, and four, you know. 
but as you say, there's 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 sort of a gaping gap there. Oh, um, you know, after you know five, they've got the new ship, and then we jump ahead, and then in six, they're shutting everything down. Mm-hmm. So and Sulu's gone. So well, well, what did they do with the Enterprise A before everything? They were decommissioned, and Sulu left, and everything was kind of winding down. You know, this is the pre-winding down era. I really like the movie era Kirk. That's my favorite Kirk. So this is really good. The time that you're placing this, and like you said, a wiser Kirk, but dealing with things that happened during the five-year mission, those are probably my favorite Kirk stories, actually. Well, just to tease a little more, where I got the idea for this book, Foul Deeds Will Rise, I, I was literally watching a very specific um, old TOS episode, and it ended on kind of an odd coda, and I found myself wondering, well, what happened next? What, whatever became of this character? And what happened if Kirk ran into them again 20 years later? And, oh, you know, that's a book. That's <laughs> you know. great. So yeah, that's literally, fantastic. That, that's literally, I could, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint the genesis of a book. This one I can. I was watching a certain episode. I watched the, ep- the final teaser scene of that episode and sort of, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so. This is the whatever happened to so-and-so. So we know it's not one of the episodes that ends with them all laughing at the end and slapping their knees. So we can narrow it down a little bit, right? Yes, you can. (laughs) Uh, It is not, in fact, a episode slapping. It it, it ends on sort of a somber note, which made me wonder what happened next. And yeah, this is going to be a somewhat somber book. Um, Indeed, rather more so than, say, No Time Like the Past. This this, This is going to be a rather, like I said, you know, more mature, somber um, Kirk book. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's really cool, and it gives us a great opportunity to explore some places in, in Star Trek history that, um, you know, we, we really are rife for the, the plucking. Um, and, and there's a lot of, of, of stories to tell. I think that and that, you know, the the right after the motion picture are, are great places to really get into uh, Star Trek characters, you know, because it's also really interesting time periods. A lot happens between Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, and, say, Star Trek Two. Uh, there's a lot of changes that go on there. So um, those kind of places are, are places that I think fans really love seeing. And so this is super exciting to me, Greg, um, because, like Chris, I love this Kirk. I love movie Kirk. Um He's a little bit older, a little bit wiser, but he still has that glimmer in his eye that lets you know that um, he doesn't believe in a no-win scenario. You know, he he's going to find a way, and, and every time he does, and it's super exciting when he does. So this is fantastic. And incidentally, there's actually, just to um, tease some more, there's a lot of McCoy in this book. If you liked all the McCoy oh, in yes. past, Matthew will be uh, thrilled. there's a lot of McCoy in this book. I, I, I'm not sure I even intended it to but as I was writing the book, more and more scenes of Kirk sort of, well, you know, Kirk sits down and has a heart-to-heart. He tends to have, have it with McCoy, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, there, there's a lot of scenes of Kirk and McCoy and their relationship and their interacting in this book. Plus, like I said, I tried to give Chekhov a little more responsibility. This is the Chekhov has more responsibility uh, book, you know. He's not just the green young kid anymore. Well, and that's really cool, I think, because, you know, um, you know, Kirk and McCoy have the the great interaction in Star Trek Six. You know, where they're taken to Repente together, and they have a ton of great scenes there. That 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 relationship is really kind of, I think, um, deepened. You know, you you see the depth there. These two guys who've been in service together forever, and 
have this mutual love and respect for each other. They're able to rib each other at any point. Um, so man, that's, that's great. I'm super, super excited for this book with, which with a title, I must say that just sounds fantastic. I mean, foul deeds will rise. Uh, I'm expecting epic. So this is exciting. Incidentally, the, the, the that actually comes from uh, Shakespeare, by the way, Hamlet. Oh, well, and that is my favorite Shakespeare play. So you are on all cylinders here, Greg. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a grand Star Trek tradition to take yes. you know titles from Shakespeare. I'm surprised Very I've true. never done it before. Well, you just learned to read the original Klingon, right? <laughs> of course, yes. Um, I think also that, you know, I, I like that title too because it does sort of imply that this is going to be a somewhat darker and more serious book. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know. Foul deeds will rise, yes. Well, anything else, um, Greg, that our our listeners need to know about what's up next for you or what they need to be getting of yours that's coming out? And, of course, two, where they can follow you online. Well, okay. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I actually just finished writing the novelization of the new Godzilla movie. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. Excellent. I read your Man of Steel novelization last year, and it was great, so... Well, I, I, I actually did the final corrections for Godzilla um, not not long ago, and that's coming out in May. So, and at the moment, I'm like very very tightly focused on Foul Deeds Will Rise, although I'm already vague conversations about doing another Trek book beyond that, which will probably be a TOS book, although I have no idea what it will be at this point. Okay. <laughs> uh, like I said, at the moment, I'm just focused on Foul Deeds Will Rise, but. Beyond that, honestly, I don't have much of an online presence. I have a website, which I, I, I really need to update. I don't think I've even got Godzilla listed on it yet. But I, I, I'm not, I, one of these days I need to get wired and figure out Twitter and set up a special Facebook page and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm like McCoy. I'm old. I'm a Luddite. Okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's um, okay. We'll just... I, I'm talking to you on a landline as we speak, you know. Um, so We'll get Dayton and David Mack to kind of give you a little tutorial there about uh, Twitter and how to make it work for you. I, I, I need to drag myself into the wonderful new world of social media. I'm not quite there, <laughs> you know. But... I, I realize it is it's a paradox to be a you know technophobe Star Trek author, but you know um, there you are <laughs> you know I, I am much better at Star Trek science than real science. Okay, <laughs> that's Star okay. Trek tech than real tech. You know. Well, that's that's awesome. Um, so we'll have um, definitely the listeners be on the lookout for the uh, the Godzilla. Um, oh, I, I need to mention one other thing, which I actually promised my my, my editor I would mention. Okay. Um, as of Sunday, um, uh, No Time Like the Past hit number 20 on the New York Times bestseller list. Awesome. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And this is actually the sixth Star Trek book in a row now to hit the yeah. New York Times bestseller list. It's amazing. Fantastic. It's a great like a revival of Star Trek literature. I, I am so glad that I, was not, I, I did not break the streak. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to say I think – that um, there's a big reason for that, and the book really is great. So I, I just want people to realize that this is a great um, and, and fantastic Star Trek um, TOS adventure with the, the 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 real enjoyment of having Seven thrown in there. And it, for anyone who worried that 
that this might seem gimmicky or whatever. I think this completely works. So well-deserved, Greg. I'm glad to hear, hear that because, indeed, when it was first announced, there was some scratching of heads online, you know. But I'm glad to hear it worked for you, you know, and I'm very grateful that they actually let me do it. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Greg, um, I so much appreciate you coming on the show um, and giving us your time, especially since I know that you've been hard at work on uh, your latest Star Trek novel today. Um, thank you for allowing us to give you an opportunity to take a break <laughs> and oh, joining good. us it's, for the show. You know, you, you, it's good to actually find out there's other people at the other end of the books. You, you sort of sit here and write the books in isolation and then, oh, good. You, you throw them out into the world and you want to, kind of want to hear the response. Right. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you so much. Um, and uh, we look forward to being able to have you on for Foul Deeds Will Rise. And uh, it's and as much success with that book, hopefully, as you've had with this one as well. I will see you. I will see you around New Year's then. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. Well, Greg, thanks again so much for uh, taking some time out for us tonight. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, Matthew, I'm so glad Greg could set some time aside for us tonight because, as you mentioned, he's very, very busy with writing right now. And um, for him to spend his night with us was really nice. Man, Chris, and, and the stuff that uh, we got about his latest book, plus the one that he's working on now that hasn't even come out, is just fantastic. I know that the listeners are probably going to be eating that up because I was. I had no I idea that he was going to share so much. It's like, and just to tease a little bit more, and we're like, yes, <laughs> more teasing. I felt, I felt like we were at like an <laughs> Apple thing and Steve Jobs, oh, and one more thing. And one more thing. <laughs> and one more thing. Yes, absolutely. Oh, goodness. That was great. Well, No Time Like the Past is not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. A lot time commentary. He's got I love his room with yeah. the weird lights. And <laughs> well, he, he shops at Spencer's. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that is. <laughs> oh, poor Colin. Oh, that joke will kill in America. Earl Grey. Jordy LaForge. They're, you know, Sherlock and Watson flying in the face of copyright laws that they didn't realize <laughs> at the time. <laughs> the Ready Room. Emergence. The entire scene that Picard and Beverly have is about one-upping each other with pointless <laughs> trivia about the yeah. Orient Express that they each have. Well, did you know? Well, Beverly, I knew that, but did you know this? And it's like, <laughs> like what is the point of this scene? I don't... The Orb. Trail on trial. There are motifs that carry through, like right. her and, hands behind her back. Right, exactly. Example. And that's where I think you get the variation on a theme. You know, it's not a new song. It's not even a new verse. It's a reordering of notes to create something different and yet similar. To the journey! Costumes on Voyager. Take that, Enterprise D. That's right. You think your mind was blown in 87. Just wait until you see it in 97. <laughs> Warp 5. TOS Impressions of Seasons 1 and 2. Once I actually started watching it, I began to understand that it was about our future leading into TOS. It's more of a sequel for us than it is a prequel for TOS. Commentary, Trek stars. The X-Files, Small Potatoes. When I get to this episode, I get excited. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is one of the ones that I 
continually find more things to like about it. Melodic tricks. The music of unlocked time. Yeah, we can do a Muppets podcast too. I mean, at this point, we might as well, right? Right. I mean, we're doing every other show. <laughs> Literary tricks. The return of the serpent. So they all shoot the dinosaur. And then they look back, and they the Klingon... to shoot the dinosaur. And then the Klingon's like, no, I can't do it. I don't want to shoot him. I can't. If I do it, then I'll turn into one of those Klingons that I don't like. You mean one of the Klingons that's helpful? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So go grab some shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. Matthew, since, uh, actually not last time we recorded, but the time before, we didn't have a chance last week to do listener feedback. And a couple of weeks ago, we did get some interesting feedback from Christopher Baca. And he said, I started listening to Literary Treks with episode 51. So new listener just found this show. We're really glad that you found that, Christopher. And he says, the book you discussed sounded really interesting. TNG crew dealing with the realities of the DS9 war arc. And he's talking about the insolence of office and the whole slings and arrows series that we're doing here. And he said, I loved the comment you made about pompous Picard. And Matthew, this is interesting because our colleague, Philip Gilfus, who's been on the show with us before, and of course is a co-host of Earl Grey, he sent me an iMessage right after listening to that show. And he was a little bit upset at you about your remark about you calling Picard a pompous ass. Well, it, you know, it it is one of those things that Picard can do, and uh, I think that uh, it's been one of the um, great joys of the books, honestly, to kind of watch Picard mellow and become a little bit more of a rebel um, from all that he's learned. Um, you you can even see that in the in in the you know the first few seasons, specifically of, of TNG. Picard is very stuck up um, and very reserved, and uh, it does kind of create this kind of um, I am better than you attitude that he has, um, and uh, I, I really enjoy that that gets taken out of Picard a little bit as we go through yeah. the novels. Every once in a while, he does show up <laughs> in, in a book like we saw there where he's just being quite self-righteous, and and. I didn't feel like it was authentic because I felt like that Ricard could probably understand a little bit better the realities that that Admiral was facing because that Admiral does a fantastic job of kind of throwing back in in his face of, look, I care just as much about this as you do. There's a lot of realities I'm dealing with, and it's a little bit different than just being on one starship at a time. I'm thinking about the entire Federation, not just my, my, you know, ship. Um, right, so right. It, I, I thought yeah, it was I a agree. really well done scene yeah. uh, in that yeah. sense. So I, I mean, no disrespect to Picard. So Philip, I, I, I don't. So I love Picard. I think he's a fantastic character. Um, but as a, all the captains, he has his own flaws and and, and they show right. every once in a while. And, and I think it's good for us to be able to be okay with saying, hey, our, our, our favorite character isn't perfect. And I, that makes right. it a lot more fun to be able to uh, for us to get into when we do the reviews. Yeah. 
And then going back to Christopher's letter here on the same topic, he went on to say that the in-universe explanations to send the Enterprise and Picard away from the front make sense. Picard couldn't be trusted with anything military-related. He was already compromised by the Borg. He refused to make the decision to infect the Borg in Iborg. He publicly disclosed the Starfleet cloaking device in a way that probably caused a bigger issue with the Romulans than would have happened if it was exposed in a news story away from Romulan ships. See, this is the thing. Um, I don't agree totally with what Christopher's saying here about Picard not being able to be trusted with anything military, but I do get these points. What Starfleet should have done about that whole Pegasus thing, they should have done it like Apple would do with a security problem, which is just to put it in a press release and drop it around 5 p.m. on a Friday. Right, or on a Saturday (laughs) at like, you know, 3 in the afternoon when nobody (laughs) is checking their phone. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But Christopher goes on to say, you also have the matter... Other captains probably don't trust Picard, like Cisco, And yeah, that, of course, makes sense. And the crew also has demonstrated they can't handle war conditions. They freaked and whined when Jellico wanted four shifts. <laughs> That's kind of true. It's kind of a good point. Although, I don't know. I I don't know if I could, uh, you know, serve under Jellico. He was... Now, you want to talk about a pompous ass. <sighs> yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, and uh, interestingly enough, there's some great comics um, involving Jellico. And so, and we, we actually talked there about are, those in the Captain Log series. Yeah, and we talked about those. And I think that they actually help his character a little bit, right? Help you understand what's going on there just a little bit more. So you can catch those in a past episode as well. So, so yeah, thanks, Christopher, for the feedback on that. And and then Christopher also said, I just started reading the Vanguard book series. Have you done shows on any of those books yet? And I don't, well, there is an episode of Matter Stream with Dayton Ward that's just about Vanguard. But we've also talked, we've had all the authors of the Vanguard series on the show multiple times. Our very first episode, though, Chris, is actually on the novella that's the wrap-up to the Vanguard series with oh, Dayton right. Ward. And so, that's yes, right. we that have is... talked about the very last series, and we did get into some of the background and everything of Vanguard with Dayton yeah. there. Um, and like you said, we have talked to Dayton and um, David Mack and, as well. And David Mack as and well, so, yeah. So um, We have not talked to Kevin Dillmore, but... Um, uh, so yes, we have we have discussed some of Vanguard in that respect. I don't think we've done any of the novels as features, but if you listen through past episodes of Literary Treks, Christopher, you will hear lots of stuff about Vanguard, especially the shows that have Dayton and the shows that have David Mack on them. We always end up talking at some point about about Vanguard. So yeah, so you can pick that up right there, and um, and also. He asks about us going back and doing some older books, such as Diane Duane's Romulan series. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely be doing older books along the way. There's just so much stuff to cover that it takes us a while to get to things. And we like to have the authors on when new books come out. But but yeah, we'll definitely be getting there eventually. So uh, thanks for your feedback, Christopher. Glad you're enjoying the show. Glad you found us. And for everyone else, if you'd like to send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can do that by going to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose literary treks. That'll come to Matthew and me both by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners. 
and on social media. You'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter under username trekfm. All right, Matthew, when you're not, you know, figuring out what you would say to Seven if she came back in time to meet you, where can people find you? How you doing? Uh, Chris, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Um, you can also find me doing The Orb. Uh, we talked about Deep Space Nine and, and, and actually got a chance to do a great episode this week. Uh, talked about Trials and Tribulations with the guys from uh, the standard orbit gang so just really enjoyed that uh and then of course you can find me at my own personal blog at 42 life in between dot wordpress dot com now chris when you're not time traveling time hopping looking for a way to bump into seven in her time traveling um mess where can we find you <laughs> yeah you know i'm i'm almost like anorex in the way i've screwed up the timeline just trying to set up a meeting a chance meeting, of course, with Seven. I wondered why I had so much gray hair these days. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere and social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you'll find me, of course, Matthew, with you on the Orb, talking DS9. You'll find me on Warp 5, talking Enterprise. And you'll find me on my interview show, Matterstream, which I I just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, the very first, I think it was maybe, I don't remember which show it was, but I had Dayton on there to talk about Vanguard. And uh, I have a new show called Continuing Mission, which is all about fan series and independent productions. And the first guest on that show is Doug Drexler. And listeners of Literary Treks will remember that we had David R. George III on a while back to talk about Revelation and Dust. And we talked to David about creating the new Deep Space Nine station that first appears in the fall series. And Doug and I also talk about his part of that process on continuing mission. So if you want to hear Doug's perspective on the design choices that were made for the new DS9, go over and catch that episode as well. And then you'll find me every week on the Ready Room with hosts from all over the network and special guests as we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series. Before we let you go, I'd like to tell you once again about our sponsor, Audible.com, and ask you please to support Audible because that helps us bring literary treks to you every week. We mentioned in the news Greg's Eugenics Wars novels, which are available in audio format on Audible. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get one audiobook of your choice absolutely free just for trying Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up, you can grab the first book in the Eugenics Wars series. And you're, you're going to love it, I promise. So go check it out and support Audible. That helps us bring literary tricks to you every week. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. One more thing you can do to help us keep the show coming is to make a donation to the network. And I'd like to give a shout out to Ed Summers, who recently made a donation. We really appreciate your support, Ed. And for everyone else, if you go to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find different levels of contributions that you can make. And we have illustrated aliens available as badges and art prints for you as a thank you. And your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring both this show and, and everything that we do to you every week because it does cost us money to produce these shows even though they're free for you guys to download. So go check it out at trek.fm slash donate and we really, really thank you for your support of the network. 
Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.